about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos, and we're picking up this evening on page 314, uh, which seems amazing to me. I know we've been at this for a long time, but we've been making our way through this first volume, and we're finishing up uh, Hypothesis 37 uh, tonight, and then moving on to 38, and uh, so it's been good reading it with you, and hopefully it'll be uh, rich again tonight in content for us and guidance. And so what we've been looking at is the practice of asceticism, but in particular, as we mentioned last time, in light of receiving the counsel of others, in particular of one spiritual elder. And uh, we are following along that line of thought with the end of this hypothesis uh, but also it broadens out for us, too, that as we seek to be attentive to the providence of God in our life, his guidance, that it's not only through one's spiritual elder, but also through others or circumstances that God will make his will known to us. And so we want to develop listening hearts, obedient hearts uh, that are constantly attentive to what God might be revealing to us or what he would will for us. And sometimes it comes to us through unlikely sources or surprising sources. And uh, even through those uh, relationships, perhaps that are difficult or challenging. And we've read about that, especially these past couple of weeks where uh, sometimes the elders were uh, either not living the life themselves or, and so not an example or being very harsh uh, with those who are in their care, and yet God still was able to work through them uh, to the benefit and the sanctification of their disciples. And so, again, we're finishing up with Hypothesis, hypothesis 37. We're on th page 314, letter C. A certain elder was living outside Alexandria in what were called the hermit's cells, he was very irascible and mean-spirited. On hearing of this, a young, younger brother made a promise to God, saying, O Lord, in order to atone for the sins that I committed as a layman, I will go and live with this elder so that I may serve him, 
and give him respite. Every day, the elder would insult him as if he were a dog. God, who saw the patience and humility of the brother six years after he had placed him under the elder, granted him a revelatory dream. In this dream, he saw a person holding a large sheet of paper, one half of which had been erased, while the other half still had writing on it. Struggle, the person said, as he showed the sheet to the brother. On this side, the Lord God has wiped out half of your debt. Struggle now to take care of the remainder. Living nearby, there was another elder, a sp sp elder, I'm sorry, elder, a spiritual man who was aware of the brother's situation. He had learned in detail how the ill-tempered elder neglected and unjustly afflicted the brother, that the brother continued making prostrations before to the elder, asking his forgiveness, but the elder would not be reconciled to him. Every time the spiritual elder met this brother, he would ask him, how goes it, my son? How did you pass the day? Have we perhaps made some gains? Have we perhaps wiped out something from the sheet? If it turned out from time to time that a day passed without the brother being insulted, spat upon, or persecuted by the elder, the brother would then go in the evening to this, his neighbor, the spiritual elder, and say to him, weeping, Woe is me, Abba, because this day was bad for me, and I gained nothing but passed the day in peace. Six years later, the brother reposed. After a short while, the spiritual elder told us about him. Fathers, he said, I saw him in the company of the martyrs, supplicating God with great boldness on behalf of his elder, saying, O Lord, just as thou hadst mercy on me through him, have mercy on him in thy great compassion for the sake of me, thy servant. Forty days later, the disciple took his elder with him to the place of repose. Behold, what boldness is gained by those who endure affliction for the sake of God. So it's interesting, this morning I was reading from the first volume of the Philoclea, uh, St. Mark the Ascetic, and he says that you know, those who are able uh, to endure the afflictions of day-to-day -day life uh, grow in a knowledge and are given a knowledge uh, that helps them to endure, but also preserves their peace and uh, preserves them from anger. And so affliction is sometimes and often comes to us uh, providentially uh, in order to humble us, to lead us to cling to God more, to trust in his grace, to pray, uh, to struggle with our own anger, or perhaps as with this uh, young brother, to purify the heart that has been immersed in sin throughout the course of the life. And so as Anthony writes in the comments, is this the concept of doing purgatory now so you don't have to go to purgatory later there was something purgative certainly for this disciple uh and so deeply uh that he then becomes an advocate uh of his elder uh after he he dies but also he's seen as a martyr uh by this other spiritual elder 
that not only had it purified his heart and purified him of his past sins, but raised him up to this level of martyrdom, a dying to self uh, and living to Christ so so deeply that he becomes, uh, uh, in a sense, a confessor of the faith in the greatest kind of way, a, a white martyrdom. And, uh, and so, yes, I would say deeply purgative. And again, you know, this is a hard thing for us in our day-to-day -day life to not only embrace, but to discern, you know, the nature of it. And here, you know, certainly we have this brother enter into this relationship precisely for the reason that is described then in, in the story that he knows the weight and the burden of his sin. And so he goes not to someone who's going to coddle him, but he chooses uh, an elder that is rough and not only rough around the edges or stern and demanding, but one that is brutal to him, you know, in the sense of uh, treating him with no, no dignity. So humbling him in the greatest way on a daily basis. And uh, and so there was something within this brother that was seeking out this kind of purification from self, from ego, from all the things that led him to cling to his own will and to his sin for the uh, first part of his life. And uh, because it was so deep, he chooses then to enter into this relationship that was going to try him in the deepest way as well that would put him to the the test in that regard and uh and so you know i think when we look at our lives we, we don't want to read this in the sense of you know throwing ourselves into abusive relationships you know here was a man who entered into this for a particular reason and again within this context of his awareness of the poverty of his own sin and allowing this instrument, as faulty as it might be, and as rough of uh, a blade as it might be, to work upon him, to reshape his mind and his heart, to free him from the burden of his sin. And uh, so, you know, it's, again, a challenging thing for us. Uh, I'm glad we have the uh, the hypotheses that follow, because again, uh, they clarify for us, you know, something of, of what obedience means. Again, I think it's all meant to, to lead us back to Christ and to this deep kind of listening to God in the circumstances of our day-to-day our -day life. So it's not this kind of slavishness of becoming a doormat to the other but it's being able to discern within our life where God is acting. And as again, and again, sometimes he's going to act through circumstances and people, situations that might seem like unlikely candidates for the formation of a holy heart. Okay, any final comments about this hypothesis before we move on to the next? Okay, hypothesis 38, page 316, if you just joined us, how the grace of God often teaches those who watch over themselves to entrust themselves to his providence, 
what they ought to do through simple people and strangers. The humble do not refuse to learn from anyone they may encounter. And so some wonderful stories here from uh, ex extremely you know, holy individuals, but also great writers within the spiritual tradition from the life of St. Ephraim the Syrian, but also from Pacomius. Uh, if you remember, he was one of the first to write a rule for those who lived the Cenobitic life. From the life of St. Ephraim, Ephraim the Great was continuously occupied with the thought of God, and he unceasingly brought to his mind the day of judgment. For this reason, he was in a constant state of mourning, and as the psalmist says, he lodged for a long time in the wilderness as if he were a fugitive, so as to escape all the tumult and the surge of life. And so uh, Ephraim is guided in his desire for God um, to embrace the life of solitude, being mindful, uh, again, of, of the judgment, mindful of his own mortality, and seeking a life of holiness, of, of embracing the exile of the desert and of the solitude of the desert as well in order that his heart might be purified. Going from place to place for the sake of spiritual benefit and edification, for he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to do this. At the command of God, he once, le at one, he once left his fatherland like Abraham and went to, to Edessa. The purpose of this journey of his was on the one hand to venerate the holy relics and places of the city, and on the other hand, to meet with one of the learned men in this place in order to receive the fruit of knowledge from him. He besought this from God as follows. O Jesus Christ, Master and Lord of all, vouchsafe me to enter the city of Edessa so that I might meet there the kind of man who will be able to speak with me for the edification and benefit of my soul. So he leaves the comfort of his homeland and like the desert monks enters into this, as I mentioned, exile. Uh, again, not simply you know, fleeing the world, but also to be able to listen to God and to discover the will of God for him in life. After praying in this way, when he had reached the entrance to the city and had gone in through the gate, he became pensive. He was anxiously concerned about what kind of man he would encounter in order to fulfill his prayer, the sort of things he would ask him about, and what kind of benefit he would receive from this meeting. As he was walking about engrossed in his thoughts, he suddenly came across a woman and a prostitute at that. This encounter was certainly the work of God, who often arranges circumstances in such a way as to achieve one set of results from its apparent opposite in a mysterious and ineffable manner. Thus, when the holy Ephraim met the prostitute, contrary to all expectation, he stood opposite her and looked at her full of surprise. While his soul was inwardly disturbed and distressed, since what he had sought from God in prayer had not come to pass, but rather the complete opposite. For her part, the woman seeing him look at her with such curiosity and surprise, in turn cast a penetrating glance at him. 
After each had observed the other in this way for some time, the great ascetic thought to shame her and restore her to the modesty that befits women. So he said to her, well then, do you not blush with embarrassment, madam, from staring at me like this? It is appropriate for me, she replied, to look at you because I was fashioned from your own rib, whereas you should not gaze at me so inquisitively, but should be looking at the earth from which you yourself were fashioned. And St. Ephraim heard these words, he without hesitation thanked the woman profusely for the help that he had received from her reply. And he also offered fervent thanks to God who can often benefit us from unexpected quarters and bring us great pro greater profit than what we had hoped for. So I, I'd mentioned this towards the end of our last session, and it's a great story, uh, you know, seeking uh, in goodwill uh, wisdom from God and thinking that he was going to find it certainly from a holy man. And so he enters into the city, uh, going there to venerate the relics. And uh, the way the story is set up is beautiful. You know, he's sort of abstracted in his mind, thinking of all the things that this holy man might say to him, what he might ask him, you know, what might be asked of him. And as he's standing there and becoming frustrated, you know, of not coming upon such an individual, he catches sight of this prostitute. Uh, and it's a beautiful story. I mean, you could probably, I could sort of envision it being played out in a little movie or a little short about Ephraim's life. But uh, uh, so he gazes at her, but he gazes at her with uh, a judgmental look and even making himself uh, sort of the father, the, God, the spiritual God. And so he looks at her with this piercing look, trying to shame her into uh, a kind of modesty, shame her as it were out of her lifestyle. And her response catches him by surprise that it has this uh, wisdom to it. Uh, she says, uh, uh, hold on for one second. Uh, it's appropriate for me, she replied, to look at you because I was fashioned from your own rib whereas you should not gaze at me so inquisitively. So, you know, she humbles herself and says, okay, you know, it's, uh, I've been created from your rib as Eve was from Adam's rib. And so it's appropriate for me to be looking at you, but why are you looking at me so inquisitively? And you should be looking at the ground from which you came, humus, that you should be humble, that she picks up something or God reveals something to her, whether or not she acknowledged it and what she said to him is, uh, doesn't matter so much as the truth that is spoken. You should be looking at the ground rather than looking at me so inquisitively. Uh, and one kind might say also looking at her so pridefully that look at the ground, keep your eyes downward, not only not to look at me as if you're uh, looking at me lustfully, you know, but look, look at the ground more importantly, 
in order to remind yourself of the humility that you are to have, you know, that we all come from the same origin, as it were, and that uh, you should not be setting yourself above me or taking upon yourself the prerogative that belongs to God alone, which is the judgment of others. And so it's brilliant. And so he finds exactly the word that he, he needs to hear, be humble, be lowly, you know, do not set yourself above others. Because there was even a way, I think, in coming to this city, uh, a kind of romanticizing of this individual that he was going to meet or how God was going to meet him or communicate to him that some holy individual was going to pass on some nugget of wisdom to him and that he could even sort of take a kind of joy in that that God led him to this city and brought him to this uh, holy and respected individual and instead he's brought to the city and what is he given but a prostitute to correct him and to correct him so sharply you know, pierced to the heart, you know, why are you sitting in judgment of me? Remember from where you came, you know, if you were driven in to the desert, to, into solitude, uh, for the reasons that we hear at the beginning of the story, because he's remembering the day of judgment, the, you know, remembering his own death, you know, if th that was real, uh, if it wasn't rooted in his own ego, then he wouldn't be looking at her in the way that he was looking at her with such in such a harsh way he would be he would be humble and he would he would judge no no man or woman so it's a a, a magnificent story in my mind uh so simple and it takes us exactly where we are meant to be and how elders too are to approach those in their care, but how we are to approach everyone, you know, not setting ourselves up as teachers, not setting our, and certainly not setting ourselves up as judges of others uh, or to command them to do this or that. But it is really to be by our life that we bear witness to the love and the humility of Christ. And a true elder should be able to do that without words. And so obedience is this ability and humility to hear, to listen to what God is saying to us. But the elder has to be one who has, has taken that path himself, experienced it and received that from others uh, who themselves are, are humble. They're shown how to be humble. And this woman just gave him exactly what he needed. He, he's shown, you know, in this most powerful way, how, what, you know, how lacking in humility he is by his, his gaze at her. Any thoughts about this? Anthony writes, uh, on preaching the gospel among evangelicals, there is an emphasis of calling someone to recognize their sin and accept Christ. That doesn't seem to be the Catholic tradition, is it? And the Bible it seems only the prophets did that. 
and we are not prophets. That's right. And those called specifically by God uh, to do it in a specific way to a specific group of people. Uh, but in with the coming of Christ, our understanding of that prophetic role also changes. That, you know, again, we go back to that phrase where he says, even the least in the kingdom is greater than John, you know, the greatest of all prophets. That our understanding of what it is to be priest, prophet, and king, you know, in Christ changes. You know, how is it that he manifests this prophetic role? And we see him do it most powerfully from the cross and from his embrace of it and those final words from the cross and his obedience to the Father even unto death. This is the kind, this is the witness that we are to bear to the world. And too often we do use words and sharp words and, you know, uh, those lacking in the spirit of the gospel. And uh, that's one of the reasons I think this, this story is so powerful and what is to come is similar to it. And in some ways, even more direct. Okay. From the life of Pacomius. St. Pacomius the Great, realizing well how wise his disciple Theodore was in all things, for although Theodore was young, he strengthened many who were weaker in their asceticism, rejoiced greatly over this. Everyone in the Cenobium was accustomed to gathering each afternoon in one part of the monastery to listen attentively to the teaching of the great Pacomius. One afternoon, when they had gathered together for this purpose, he ordered Theodore, who, as we said, was young, not more than 20 years old, to preach the word of God to the brethren. Without any objection or disobedience, Theodore immediately opened his mouth and said many things to the monks for their spiritual benefit. When some of the older monks heard the young Theodore speaking, they did not want to hear him, saying among themselves, since this upstart is teaching us, we will not listen to him. So leaving the assembly, each withdrew to a cell. When the lesson was over, St. Pacomius summoned the older monks. As soon as they came, he asked them, for what reason did you leave the preaching and withdraw to yourselves? They answered, because you appointed a boy as teacher to instruct senior monks who've grown old in the monastery. On hearing this excuse, the great Pacomius sighed deeply and said to them dejectedly, do you know whence evil came into the world? Whence, they asked, from pride, for which cause Lucifer, who rises at dawn, fell from heaven and was dashed to the earth. For this cause, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon dwelt with wild beasts, or have you not heard what Holy Scripture says? Everyone that is prideful in heart is an abomination before the Lord. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Now then, by virtue of your forgetting these things, you are overcome by the devil. 
and you lost all of your virtue. For pride is the mother and the origin of all evils. You did not abandon Theodore when you withdrew, but in fleeing from the word of God, you were separated from the Holy Spirit. You are truly worthy of pity. How is it that you, are, you failed to understand that Satan enticed you to come to the point that you have reached? So, as I said, even more direct than the story of Ephraim, that here Pacomius uh, uh, tells them uh, to their faces that you, you did not simply leave Theodore, that you left God in going back to yourselves. You left the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit left you, and you left all of your virtue behind in this prideful action. So rather than showing themselves the experienced monks who had lived long in the monastery, they revealed that they had learned very little from all of that experience. Whereas this young monk who may have been 20 years old, you know, showed far greater wisdom and humility uh, than, than all of them put together. How much more ought you to have listened to him with humility? I will tell you truly. I, who am your spiritual father in the Lord, that I listened to him so devotedly that I did not know my right from my left. I tell you before God that if you did not display the greatest repentance for all this, this fall of yours, so that you may be forgiven your transgression, you will go to perdition. And since you have made this evil beginning, you will not cease until you become worthy of the ultimate verdict of condemnation. With these words, the great Pacomius sufficiently cauterized the wound of pride and by his paternal admonition effectively cured their sickness. For he was abrupt when necessary, but he was also gentle on the other hand, when the situation called for it, sometimes chiding sinners and at other times urging them on to good. So Pacomius, you know, this little last paragraph is telling us that he was pure of heart, that he did have this gift of discernment, that he could chide those under his care uh, when needed, and especially those who are deeply immersed in their pride, but could be gentle and meek with those who were you know, simply lost their way or were struggling in the faith. But he was able to need, be what uh, God desired him to be at the moment. Cauterizing the wound of pride. You know, it's often, you know, for us, that is the only way to free us from its grip, that we will go back to it over and over again, even when it's been revealed to us that it's foolhardy to place trust in our hearts or in our own judgment. Uh, there's a line from Jeremiah uh, that speaks of the heart as being a, a treacherous and torturous thing that it often will betray us, our own hearts, and lead us down the wrong path. And it's a humbling notion but 
uh, in stories like this, we see that even those who have left the world and dedicated themselves to this discipline of living in obedience were easily, so easily tempted by Satan into pride simply by having a young monk come before them to teach them. And that they could not hear, you know, Pacomius was saying, when I listened to him, I, could, I didn't know my right hand from my left. You know, I was so enthralled by what he was saying. At least I think that's what he said, right? Did I read that correctly? So, you know, he was able, even though he's the guide of all of them, was able to hear and benefit from what Theodore was saying, whereas the rest of them were not able to receive it. Any thoughts on this little story? Uh, you think I missed a paragraph? Did I? Eric, which one did I miss? Oh, Great Wonder? Is that the paragraph? Yeah, yeah Oh, Great Wonder. Okay, I'm sorry. A little tired tonight. Let's, I'll go back and pick it up. Oh, Great Wonder, God, God humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death for our sake. And we lowly, though we are by nature, vaunt ourselves. He who by nature is sublime and infinite benefited the world through his humility, though he could consume the universe with his glance. Whereas we who are earth and ashes, and still more insignificant than these, become puffed up, unaware that in so doing, we send ourselves off to the nether regions of the earth. Did you not notice how attentively I listened to his talk? I assure you that I myself profited greatly from hearing him, for I did not allow him to preach to you in order to test you, but because I myself wanted to be edified. And that's when he says, uh, I listened to him so devotedly that I did not know my right from my left. Thanks for picking that up. Figures I left out the most important paragraph. <laughs> How humbling. Uh, 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 Sigmund Freud said there are no mistakes. So I mu there must have been something in me that m made me want to avoid that paragraph. It was too challenging. Uh, so that really, that really does bring it into even sharper focus. I mean, it becomes, he uses Christ himself as being this lens for us that, you know, God humbled himself. And so who are we then uh, to back away from receiving that which is put before us uh, to nourish us or to say that it's, you know, it's something not to our liking or we want something better. In another instance, the saint was sitting in the workshop where he was weaving mats and a boy who had been appointed to serve that week came up to him. He looked at the saint as he worked and said to him, do not spin the thread that way. You're not doing it properly. Abba Theodore weaves in a different way. The great Pacomius then humbly rose from his handiwork and said to the boy, my son, teach me the other way. After learning from the boy the other way of working, he sat down to work again with great joy. Laying low, even in this circumstance, the spirit of pride. For if he had been dominated by the mind of the flesh, 
he would not have been persuaded, but would have rebuked the boy for speaking out of turn. So again, another great little story that a little boy who's been watching the other monks make their mats notices this detail that the great Pacomius was making it in a different way from all of them and so corrects him. And uh, it's great, you know, he, he responds not with an ounce of pride, but is able to receive it and ask the boy to teach him to show him, you know, doesn't yell at the boy, doesn't shame the boy or chase him away or cling, you know, to his own way of doing things, but it allows himself to see God and hear God in that moment. And, you know, it's interesting, those, those moments can come upon us so quickly and we can turn away from them and even turn away from them in a kind of anger and reject them saying, you know, who's this little, you know, runt to tell me how I'm to be making these mats and, and not receive this, what turns out to be this great blessing, an opportunity to let go of a spiritual pride. And think about it, you know, Pacomius is revered by everyone in the monastery for his holiness and you know his wisdom and how treacherous that position could be and you know so we hear already that he asked theodore to preach not to humble the other monks but in order that he might be edified you know that he already had a kind of humility but all, all also asked him to do it that he might humbly receive what God would offer him through uh, the words of Theodore, but then allows a young boy to correct him who tells him Theodore doesn't do it this way, that, you know, this, you know, humble young monk does it a better way. And he's able to receive that without, without missing a beat. And, you know, how many times during a given day would something like this happen to us where we might let that pass us by or or reject it you know make no account of what a person says not listen just dismiss it or tell them you know in an angry way to get away leave us alone we know what we're doing who are you you little upstart you know to tell me how to make a mat Any thoughts about these stories? So we're, we're being given this image, I think, of, of humility, of obedience, of trusting in the providence of God that is meant to broaden out our, our view. That, you know, God speaks to us, engages us in so many different ways in our life. And so we are to develop this listening heart. You know, and this is why we've talked about obedience coming from ab adore, to listen, to hear. And so to seek silence and stillness in our life, not for their own sake, but to be able to, to listen to God on a deeper level, to hear a word that he desires to speak to us. And so if this is a word of God being spoken to Pacomius or, or to all those monks in the monastery through uh, his correction of them, you know, what a loss to miss 
those kind of moments because we are so distracted by the things of the world or distracted by our own sin. Okay. Any other thoughts? Did I miss any other paragraphs? How dare you, Eric? Hold me up for humiliation in front of <laughs> Now this is going to be perpetuated for all eternity on the internet. <laughs> okay. It's good for your soul. I know. Thank you. <clears throat> Letter C from the life of St. Arsenius. The great Arsenius was very well educated in both secular and Christian knowledge, surpassing all of his contemporaries in learning and virtue. For this reason, the emperor Theodosius chose him out of all the educated men of his time to be a tutor to his sons, Honorius and Acadius. And even though he was so well educated and had lived as I'm sorry, lived an ascetic life in Scetus for some time, acquiring greater knowledge of God. He nonetheless had such great humility that he was not ashamed to ask questions, even of those who were less educated, and thus to reap every possible benefit from them. Someone once saw him questioning an Egyptian monk, seeking to learn from him about various thoughts. So striking did the person consider this fact that he sought to ascertain the reason for it. The great Arsenius replied to him with simplicity, I do not deny that I possess considerable education. All the same, I confess that I have not even begun to learn the alphabet of this unlettered peasant, meaning by this godly activity and knowledge. And so, you know, what we find here in Arsenius is, uh, not only powerful, but so important in life in general, as well as in the spiritual life, which is in vo avoiding a kind of conceit of knowledge that we can be educated and educated in uh, a field and maybe even uh, very well educated in terms of the degrees that we have and maybe have a lot of experience, but that knowledge does not necessarily translate into other fields and certainly does not translate into the spiritual life, the knowledge of God. And so Arsenius understands this well. He does not have this pride, this conceit of knowledge. And so even though he had moved into the ascetic life after having received so much education in the world, even though he was living as a monk and had gained a great understanding, he humbles himself before this Egyptian monk, uh, who is obviously uneducated, unlettered, we, we are told, and is able to receive you know, great benefit from him, that he's not averse to receiving the knowledge from whatever quarter it comes to him from. And... Uh, Often, as I mentioned, we aren't like that. You know, we can become so focused upon the things that we we know uh, as if somehow, again, that translates into other things of life or 
you know, we don't even know ourselves. How could we know others or what's going on in their heart? And, uh, and certainly, you know, how can we think that we know God? Again, even when we don't know our own sins or our own weakness and poverty. So again, you know, just a wonderful story. But uh, in our own day and age, when, you know, education and information is so valued and so freely uh, obtained now, you know, that people can become this wealth of, or have this abundance of, what is it, trivia. And, you know, or even when it seems to be of great importance, you know, of all this minutia about different things. And this exists in the church too, where, you know, somebody could know all these like fine details about liturgy, you know, and the Latin word for this or that, you know, going back to this or that, you know, saint or time and, you know, all well and good. And it can be of benefit, certainly, but it does not necessarily speak to our knowledge of God or our living out the gospel or, or reveal what is within our own heart, the truth about ourselves that can lead to repentance. And so we might have all the knowledge in the world and be able to speak about theology, liturgy, uh, spirituality even. And if we do not live it or if we lack humility, it's all for naught. On another occasion, the wondrous Arsenius went to the river as he was getting ready to wash. An Ethiopian woman grabbed him by the, his cloak. When the great Arsenius scalded her severely for this, the woman replied to him, if you are a monk, Arsenius, flee to the mountains. Arsenius considered these words beneficial. So if you're a monk, then go be a monk. You know, go, you know, if you are worried about being touched by a woman or having her grab your cloak and you want to remove yourself from temptation because of your weakness, then go do it. Go live in the mountain tops, but don't scold, don't scald me. And so Arsenius, again, is able to receive this, you know probably in more ways than one, you know, either going off and becoming a monk, you know, removing himself or allowing himself to be humbled by it and say, you know, what are you doing in scolding her? All that it reveals is your own lack of purity of heart, that the, you know, the, the mere touch of your cloak, you're going to take offense, offense at it. As, the, as if this woman is a threat to you more than your own heart. So again, you know, great, great little story. Each of these little paragraphs is a real nugget, I think, in, in, that, in that regard. Any thoughts about any of this before we move on to letter D? Okay. Abba Anthony once received letters from the Emperor Constantine asking him to go to Constantinople and he pondered on what he should do. Addressing himself to Abba Paul, 
his disciple, he asked him whether he should go. Abba Paul replied to him, if you go, your name will be Anthony. But if you do not go, you will be Abba Anthony. He obeyed Paul and did not go. So, <laughs> simple little saying, but again, perfect. You know, if you go, you know, you will have the esteem of the world, esteem in your own eyes. You will probably come to know great power and wealth, but you'll simply be Anthony. You won't be Alba Anthony. You'll be corrupted by that path. A brother once asked a young monk, that is a boy, about the benefit of conversations. The boy answered him, if the words of a conversation are just babble, avoid them. But if they are helpful, take advantage of the opportunity and speak. But however good they may be, do not speak for a long time, but be quick to break off the conversation and you will have rest. So again, it's interesting as we, we go through all these stories and as we have been talking about obedience and things such as that and listening to one's elder, then immediately the Evergetinos comes back to us with a, a hypothesis that really seeks to balance out our view really quickly about how God acts in our life and that we uh, are to avoid all pride and especially those who are in positions of responsibility and the guidance of others more than anybody else they have to be on guard and attentive to their hearts so that they aren't led astray and so here you know this uh, brother asked a young boy you know for this counsel about conversations and he, it turns out he gives him the, the perfect uh, the perfect answer to it. You know, very balanced and very discerning. You know, if it's just babble, get away from it. And even if it's good, then allow yourself to have it, but not too much. Because then, you, you know, your heart will be and your mind will be filled with things that lead to distraction. So allow yourself to break off from it, even when it's good, so that your heart might know rest. And, you know, what great counsel that is, even separated from everything that we we're talking about, you know, when thinking about allowing the mind and the heart to rest, you know, uh, breaking off conversation or limiting conversation in order that we can, that we do not sacrifice the, the time and silence that we need, again, to listen to God and to the word that he desires to speak to our heart. That there's always going to be greater value in that for us than human conversation. And that we only break it when the value or the beauty of those words is obvious. Letter th or number three, Abba Olympias said, a pagan priest once came down to Scetus and came to my cell where he rested. When he saw the harsh conditions under which the monks lived, live, he said to me, living as you do in this way, do you never see anything of your God? No, I replied to him. 
Whenever we offer sacrifice to our God, he said, he hides nothing from us, but reveals all his mysteries to us. And you, who subject yourselves to so many toils, to vigils, and to silence, to ascetic practices, you say that you see nothing of him at all. To be sure, if you do not see anything of him, you have evil thoughts in your heart, which separate you from your God. And this is why he does not disclose his mysteries to you. After this visit, I went and reported the words of the pagan priest to the elders. They marveled and said, truly it is so, for unclean thoughts separate a man from God. So this goes even a step further. You know, it's not receiving you know, and humbling oneself before a young monk or a boy or uh, a prostitute. But here, a pagan priest comes with these questions. He witnesses the life. He witnesses the asceticism. But he speaks this truth that, it, that they see and they hear nothing from God. And wh why is that? And he said, and he t tells them, you know, it's, uh, oh, how does he put it here? To be sure, if you do not see anything of him, you have evil thoughts in your heart. And, you know, this is a truth that the monks can't argue with. That, you know, what blinds us to seeing God or from hearing his word are these evil thoughts, whether, you know, whatever they might be. And the focus certainly here in this section has been, has been pride. That, you know, our focus upon ourself, our own thoughts, our own actions and doings, even if they be religious, can keep us from, from hearing God and from seeing him. And so, you know, this is a great time to hear this, especially during the great fast during Lent, you know, when we're embracing these ascetical practices uh, in our life that we can become self-focused or focused upon those things and not necessarily listening to God and not necessarily addressing uh, through these ascetical practices, the, what's more important, the evil thoughts within our hearts. And so, you know, they're humbled at this moment, you know, to receive, you know, not only the judgment, but the counsel of a pagan who sees the truth that perhaps they need to hear or we need to hear. That so long as we give our thoughts over indiscriminately to the things of this world and or we hold on to thoughts that are contrary to the gospel, contrary to love or to humility, we are not going to see anything beautiful in the cross or we're not going to hear anything of truth or wisdom within the gospel. It's a more challenging one. Anybody have any thoughts, comments about it? From the Nye papers, you're squirming around there in the background. No? 
Oh no, you're just playing with your dog. Okay, I understand. My bad. Okay, all right. Number four. Oh no, Anthony has a comment here. This so goes against modern education. The intellect is separated from morals or, and we are taught to set ourselves up as judges. Right, and you know, or that we've been separated from this sense of intellect that we receive from, from the fathers as noose, which is not the same as reason and uh or our judgment uh but rather again this uh eye of the heart the eye of the soul that is to be purified that allows us to comprehend the things of god and to know god and uh and so if we elevate intellect our own reason that you know to to such an extent that it becomes almost a god for us we idolize it and in some ways we do in the way that we hold up higher degrees not that education is a bad thing but often we prize that you know uh more than holiness or looking for holiness you know we, we lack what arsenius had there that he's able to receive from this unlettered egyptian monk this wisdom of God, wisdom of God, and yet we are often looking for the you know the most eloquent or highly educated individual, uh, rather than humbling ourselves before God or sitting before the Eucharist or opening the Scriptures or reading the, these simple sayings from the Fathers, and in order to. Uh, examine what's within our own hearts to see the truth about ourselves and the truth about god's mercy and compassion upon us and allowing that to move us and you know when we cling to uh you know intellect as you said with modern education you know we can be stuck in that you know find ourselves mired in it even even when we have gained a kind of clarity about it in terms of its limitation that uh you know often after people get their phd they pass their comprehensives and they finish their thesis you know uh they fall into a kind of depression and part of it is that you know they've uh it's probably this kind kind of relief or a mourning of what they've been so absorbed in for so many years but I think part of it has to be a, the realization that they've also spent that many years of their life pursuing something that perhaps was elevated idealized and romanticized in their minds as bringing a kind of fulfillment to them that if I study and I if I get that PhD, I'll have value, I'll have this identity, I'll be doctor so and so, or I'll be able to put the PhD, you know, at the end of my name, or MD, or MDiv, which I think was the big mistake for priests, you know, to you know grant a degree in any case, but uh, uh, you know that they discover okay 
is this might have value. It might allow me to do certain things in the world. It might even allow me to help certain individuals. But it does not change who I am on the deepest level of my being, my identity, who I am deep within. And in fact, a person can feel pretty empty if everything, all their energy, and so many things in their life were sacrificed, you know, in terms of friendships, their relationship with God, time, years of their life were sacrificed to pursue this. And then you reach this goal and find out, okay, it's good, but it's not, it's not what I, you know, thought in my own mind and imagination it would bring me. If only we knew that before we started down that, that path. Uh, that it's an illusion. And, uh, and, you know, those who pursue priesthood, you know, they're not impervious to this. You know, it can be driven by all the same stuff. Because it's been made, the formation has been made that. We've embraced the modern view of education. And so instead of having a priest, a holy priest tutor, you know, be an elder to a young, young person along the path of holiness and then making a decision whether or not that they should be drawn on to holy orders, you know, you go through this process of getting a degree and being evaluated psychologically and evaluated by your peers and the whole faculty. And you take all these, you know, worthless courses to satisfy, you know, uh, the demands of accreditation for your institution. But does, you know, does that make you a holy priest? Absolutely not. In fact, it could get in the way of it because, you know, just speaking from experience, seminaries can keep guys so busy and running, doing all these different things that they have no time for prayer, you know, or it's so rushed or their hearts are filled with so much anxiety because they have so much to do. That really has nothing to do, to be honest with you, with day-to-day -day ministry and what you encounter and in your interactions with others. Don't get me wrong, you know, there's a value to studying theology, church history, scripture, all of it. But we certainly weren't studying this. And I regret, regret that more than I regret, you know, that one B or something like I got in seminary. Or oh, maybe two Bs. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Where was I? Uh, did we do? Yeah, okay. Number four, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Abba Mercarius said, when I was younger, since I was weighed down with torpor in my cell, I went out into the desert saying to myself, whomsoever you encounter, question him for your benefit. After a short while, I found a boy who was tending bullocks and I said to him, my boy, what am I to do since I'm hungry? Eat, answered the boy. I ate and I'm still hungry, I replied to him. Then eat again, responded the boy. 
I have eaten many times and I am still hungry, I said for the third time. With some astonishment, the boy replied to me, since you always want to eat, Elder, are you perhaps an ass? I was helped by this answer and I departed. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes. You know, if you're focused and hungry, you know, all the time and eating all the time. And I don't think he's only talking about food here. I think we could sort of broaden this out to the things that we seek to nourish ourselves on or seek fulfillment from. And perhaps in the process, we make ourselves like the ass, you know, that we lack judgment. If food is set before us, we'll eat it. And if the junk that is in our culture is set before us, we'll consume it, you know, and with, often without thinking, even though it's toxic and poisoning us, certainly on a, a spiritual level. Number five, an elder said, I prefer to be taught than to teach. So again, this will be our last group ever of the Evergatinos. <laughs> Having read that, we could stop now. <laughs> uh, but, you know, one has to be careful. You know, it's if, if one embraces the identity of teacher, then one can be hardened to all the things that we've read up to this point you know, that one does not need to be taught or that we've reached a level where, you know, we can see ourselves as the judge of certain things, evaluate others and what others are saying. You know, priests often hate to preach in front of their fellow priest. And I imagine others in other fields can feel the same way, that physicians probably hate to give a lecture or a talk in front of fellow physicians. Uh, that you feel most criticized by them, and uh, that you're not you don't you're not in front of an audience that has a kind of generosity of spirit toward what you're saying to them, and uh, uh, and so we can lose this little bit of wisdom here. You know, I, I prefer to be the one who's taught, who's on the receiving end, uh, who's being nourished rather than being the one up in front of others, always, you know, teaching them as if somehow I'm the master when I'm in as much need of nourishment as anybody else. Abba Macarius asked Abba Zacharias, tell me, elder, what is the work of a monk? Are you asking me, father, replied Abba Zacharias with humility. Zacharias, my son, I have an inward feeling about you. There's something urging me to ask you. In my opinion, Father, to compel oneself in all things, this is the work of a monk. So, to compel oneself in all things, you know, not to cling to our private judgment or to our own will but to embrace the will of another and in particular to embrace the will of God in our lives. 
And this should be our great desire. And if we interiorize this, then you know, this should be our great desire as well. The way that we live our life, the way that we pray, the way that we study the scriptures, the way that we listen to our fellow Christians, you know, that and listen to all those around us uh, with a humble spirit, that we we have this with within uh, within ourselves, that we are setting aside our own will and seeking the will of God. We're not clinging to private judgment. And if we are those who know how treacherous the human heart can be, then, you know, we're going to even give greater care to this. Any final thoughts about this hypothesis or what we've considered? So, always sort of invigorating, jarring. I don't know what you would call it. A good scrubbing, a good scrubbing. That's right, a good scrubbing. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. And sometimes it leaves the skin feeling a bit raw and uh, hypotheses like this can do it. But always wonderful. Humility, obedience. These are all the things that are really at the heart of our faith, the heart of the gospel. And, so, and certainly should be, you know, our goals for Lent and of our ascetic practices. Okay. Well, we stop there and close as always with the Our Father. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. Amen. Would God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.